Did you post it in a place? It's on the Twitter thing. Yeah, VH1 pop-up video. Where's the Twitter thing? Which Twitter thing? You can... No, Twitter. Oh, Twitter. (laughs) The Twitter. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm trying to open a Trello board, and Tom's like, Twitter. So that's what happened over here. Um... (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, how's your day going, Chris? It's going well. It's Friday. I love Fridays at ThoughtBot. Although it's been a bunch of a week getting back into the normal flow of things. I was in Europe a, last week. And, a bunch uh, of a week. Yeah. Time is complicated. <laughs> uh, I've just been sort of jet lagged all week. And I think finally today, I'm feeling vaguely back to normal. What was the time zone difference for where you were? <laughs> I don't know. I know that Seattle was nine hours off. So that means here was six hours off. I was trying to talk to someone in Seattle, but it kept being really hard to try and plan with a nine hour time difference. Yeah. Uh, But here is six hours earlier, I want to say. Here being Boston for anyone not in the studio with us. That's a fair point. Call that out (laughs) for where we are. But it was, a, it was a good trip. It was fantastic. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Amsterdam is a wonderful city, and it was there in absolutely beautiful weather, and we got to bike and boat and just really enjoy the time and took a nice extended break as well, so that was good. I tend to just string together vacation, like two days here and three days onto a long weekend, uh, but this was, we took off Friday and then the full following week. So yeah, nice long vacation. Yeah, it's amazing how having a full week versus just a day or two here and there, it's such a big difference. Like you get to really check out for an extended amount of time because I feel like if you check out for just a day or two, you're not really checked out because you're still geared up to jump back in soon. Yep. And I think you mentioned their bikes over there that they're apparently... Well, not that maybe their bikes, but their bike paths are way better than Just what we have in Boston. the whole ecosystem around bikes, everything about it. Bikes are the paramount means of transport there. And it's if you're using a bike, it's absolutely fantastic. You can drive in sort of protected bike lanes everywhere. And everyone has the expectation that bikes sort of have the right of way. Like even pedestrians will stay out of the way of bikes, which is good because it's easier for a pedestrian to stop than a biker. But yeah, it was a fantastic way to get around. It's actually a pretty small city. So based on having the bike paths and having a culture of you just sort of park your bike in a specific area, but you don't even need to fully lock it up and chain it up because there's so many bikes. People aren't taking bikes. Oh, wow. You like lock it, but you don't chain it to something in a typical mode. Mm -hmm. Everyone tends to have less expensive bikes because then no one wants to steal them. Mm. And so then there's just this, it's very easy to get between places. You just hop on your bike, you go there, you stop. You leave your bike and now you're there. And it's so good. I want that for everywhere. Nice. Yeah. I love the areas that they're in Boston that they're starting to make far more bike friendly. Uh, They've done that for my street recently. And it was one of those glorious moments where I had no idea they were doing this. I knew they were working on my street and that they were paving it. And that was great in itself. But one morning I just got on my bike and realized I had this full bike lane that was protected and had like the guards and everything. And it was just an amazing morning. I wanted to hug whoever worked at the Boston government department that made those decisions. So... I need to find them and then not hug them, but thank them. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Well, it depends. We'll see. Read the room when you get there. Yeah. Yeah. Read the room. (laughs) But yeah, those moments where you wake up and you're like, the world is different and better. This is fantastic. Yeah. It was amazing. I love it. 
But anyway, in other news, there's a video of a talk that I gave at an organization called the Venture Cafe, uh, which is a local sort of startup accelerator space. And they had me in to give a talk about your first technology decisions. The talk was about balancing different technology, architecture, framework, language, hosting, kind of all of those big initial decisions that one might have to make when starting to build a digital product. So it was intended to be sort of for a non-technical audience or a less technical audience, but give them a bit more of a vocabulary and a little bit of help in trying to make some of those decisions. And uh, so, yeah, that is live. And folks, if they want to find it, can find that at thoughtbot.com slash resources slash speed. Or we can put a URL in the show notes, too. That's definitely possible. That's really cool. I remember when you were talking about doing that, but I hadn't followed up with you. So it was for a more non-technical crowd. Were there questions that were asked at the end? Yeah, a lot of questions. But it's interesting, the the nature of the conversation, and it sort of fits with the ThoughtBot ethos, was about how do we get a product to market quickly? And how do we, as founders of companies, how do we build something and get it out there and actually start to get feedback? And that was definitely the theme that I leaned into very strongly. And then I also talked about some technology, but I kept being like, but this doesn't really matter. Just get something out there in front of users. So there were a lot of questions about more specifics of how to do that. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. And yeah. I'm glad that we, we have a video now that we can share with folks. That sounds great. I'll have to go watch it myself. That sounds very much in line, of course, with a lot of the stuff that you and I believe in and talk about. But uh, how about you? What have you been up to? I had something exciting happen where I was invited to speak on another podcast. Your podcast empire is expanding. (laughs) My podcast empire, slowly but surely, I'll conquer the podcast world. Uh, So it's Brittany Martin. She runs the Ruby on Rails podcast, and she'd mentioned that she's a fan of the Bike Shed, and she reached out and invited me to be a guest on her show. We recorded earlier, and it was fabulous. I loved meeting Brittany. She was wonderful. She was great to talk to. So I really enjoyed that. But that was really nice to have someone else invite me on their podcast. That's only happened once before, where before I joined the Bike Shed and I was working at a, a different company, there was someone else that I'd met at a meetup who also runs their own podcast. I'll have to remember the name of it because it's been a few years. And then if we want to, we can include that in the show notes. But it's from a while back. But that was a lot of fun and was my first dabbling. So it was just fun to have a a second adventure where someone else invited me onto another podcast. And then, well, you invited me to Bike Shed and now Ruby on Rails. So as you mentioned, my empire, it's growing. It is growing. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to listening to that because at this point I'm involved in a lot of your podcast conversations. But I'm a... Excited to hear that one. And I've not actually listened to the, this is on 5x5, right? It is, yeah. 5x5, Ruby on Rails. I should definitely give the podcast a listen overall, too. So Definitely, yeah. yeah. If you haven't listened to her podcast, check it out. It's really good. She has a lot of great guests that come on the show. They're usually about 30 minutes long, so they're a great amount of time to listen to while you're commuting. And I've also been discovering her podcast, and she invited me to be on the show. I'd heard of it, but then I started listening to it more actively, and it's great. Highly recommend it. Awesome. So yeah, that was the highlight of my week. And then there was another fun thing that happened where I stepped out of my more traditional developer comfort area and put on my designer hat, where I'm used to our designers, they lead design sprints, but there was an opportunity with a client that I'm working with where we needed to go through a very small, like two hour design session and align on some of the ideas as to what software, what product we were going to build. And when I saw the opportunity, we don't have a ThoughtBot designer on that team. So I offered to facilitate the meeting and it went really well. It was a lot of fun. It was 
trying to accomplish a lot in two hours just because that is a short amount of time to bring a big group together. So to kind of help set the scene, there were about eight to 10 of us in the room and we had two hours to go through a couple of activities to build a common understanding of the pain points that one team was feeling because we were looking to build an internal admin tool and build that common understanding and then figure out a problem statement to serve as our North Star, as Jeff Stoles, one of the designers here, uh, likes to call it, as something to keep going back to when we're going through feature ideas and say, well, does it help with the problem statement? Does it address a problem statement? And that doesn't imply that problem statements can't shift, that they can't iterate like everything else, but at least you have a starting point that everyone has agreed upon. But yeah, I have to give Jeff a huge thank you and shout out because when this came up, I was very nervous. I wanted to do it, but I didn't know how to do it. And he spent an hour with me uh, one Friday just going through talking about what he would recommend, given such a short amount of time, what he thought was worth tackling, what was worth focusing on. So he said some amazing things. I was writing down like as fast as possible. I was like, wait, please say that again. Uh, He's just he's very good. And it was great to have his guidance going into this. That's fantastic. And I'm deeply impressed that with eight to 10 people in the room at various points and two hours, you were able to like move through that much of a process and actually get to a so successful outcome. Do you have a North Star problem statement now? We do. Everyone in the room was excellent. They were very active. They were there and participated in everything that we did. So I have to give them a lot of credit for the fact that it was a successful meeting in those two hours. When I sent out the meeting agenda, because I wanted everyone to have an idea for what was going to happen in those two hours, uh, there was some initial concern about how aggressive of an agenda it was because we really only had about 10 to 15 minutes for every activity that we were doing. But they did it. They were great and they were focused. And I used a timer for everything, which is one of the tricks that I've learned from other designers here and that Jeff had recommended because that way you've got the timer that's kind of like the one that's letting you know that you have to move on. Like you don't feel like saying it. Right. You get to point to that. But we did. We walked away uh, with a problem statement. We also had an activity where we drew some critical paths individually. I think that's one thing I would do differently in an activity. Everybody drew an individual critical path. And following up with Jeff, he'd recommended that it'd be a great way to just have everyone collaborate and one person draw the critical path. So that way you walk away with agreement on one path versus everyone still has their own idea of a critical path. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very useful process to like avoid writing too much code up front and all of that. I know we have the full design sprint documentation in the playbook, I want to say, which we can point folks to. Is there, like you talked to Jeff and he sort of provided you with this guidance. Is there a boiled down version of the sort of thing that you did that's written up anywhere? Or I wonder if this is a thing that we can like replicate and share. So that's an interesting question because I, I don't know if this exact model is something that I would choose to replicate just mm. because it is so crunched. So I think it worked well for this particular situation where it was something that we had to do in a hurried amount of time. But I think ideally we wouldn't time box it to such a short amount of time because there are still next steps that we need to follow up with. But I did rely heavily on looking at the resources like you just mentioned that we have online on the ThoughtBot website that talk about how we approach design sprints and the different activities we go through. And I essentially had to condense that down and determine what was the most important aspect of this. And for my particular case, it was getting everyone to a common understanding of what 
pain is this team feeling as they're trying to work with the current system or current workflow and then have that common understanding to then produce a problem statement to then help us understand what's an ideal workflow. And then the rest of the team could huddle around, focus on what features, what does a MVP look like and, and go from there. I really like that you made the MVP of the design sprint process. It's like startup bingo. You got everything together into one concept right there. That's funny. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it was an MVP design session (laughs) for sure. Uh, But it was a lot of fun. It stretched my comfort zones because that's something I've never done before. And I really enjoyed it. I think I would be on board with learning how to do this even better and then doing some more of them in the future because I think there's just so much value. Like we're building an internal tool. So there's I think it's very easy to think that you can just kind of like have a few requirements and build a successful product and that team's going to love it. But I think even admin tools deserve a mini design sprint to make sure you know what problems you're solving before you try to write software for it. I think the there are a lot of situations where we end up writing code and we might try and say, well, this is different. This isn't like really production code. Like, well, tests. Tests aren't like real code. I don't need to use the same coding standards when I'm writing my tests. That is not something I believe. That is, uh, in my mind, like tests are incredibly important. I should write them, if anything, to a higher standard or at least the same standard in the same way. Like admins are absolutely a core user of your application, pretty important one. And the idea that we would use different approaches or different methodologies is interesting at a minimum. And so I like what you're saying of like, let's bring the same thinking and workflow and purposeful process to what we build for admins because admins, admins matter too. Yeah, well, and it's great because we have direct access to them. Like, I think Mm. you and I have talked in previous episodes about what a wonderful feeling it is to be able to talk directly to the person using the tool and then get to fulfill that need that they have. And we're in that same situation where we have access to our stakeholders. So why not leverage that? And then we're reducing our risk and our cost of the overall project by first getting together and determining what we're building before we start building. So yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It was a really interesting highlight to my week. And I, I think everyone enjoyed the session. A couple of people had mentioned that they, they really appreciated the meeting. So it made me feel good that something really positive came out of it. So yeah, that was one of the highlights of my week. How about you? It's been a, a pretty normal week. I think one there was one fun conversation that did come up around, occasionally a thought about we'll talk about having a net negative lines of code. So the idea of your contributions on a project, you've removed as many or more lines as you've added. Uh, And so diffs, you know, if you're just changing a line, that's a neutral, but if you're actually removing code. And so it's sort of tongue in cheek when we talk about it, because, you know, you often have to add code. Like if you have nothing, if you're starting from zero, then you're probably going to have to add some code in order to introduce features. But the longer a system lives on, the higher the likelihood that there's some code that is no longer used that is you know representing a pattern that no longer makes sense or doesn't properly model the domain so the ability to remove that we actually really strongly value that because any simplicity that we can add to the code or to put that differently any complexity that we can take out of the code that's a huge win so there's this bias towards negative lines of code but I recently, in the code base that I'm working on, there's a, a good amount of complexity. And every once in a while, we end up working on something, a bug or whatever, that takes a while to figure out and then ends up with like a one line or a one character fix. But along with that, I just went on an adventure. I just learned a lot about the system in order to find that one line that I needed to change. So I write a commensurate mini blog post in the commit message. And the new extension of the net negative lines of code thinking that I would like to introduce is you can count lines of commit message as part of your negative lines. 
So that makes it much more, if you have change where you like change one line and you write 50 lines of summary, then that's a negative 49 right there. Ooh. Yeah, so that helps. Changing the game. Yes. Although I'm new to this game, because I, I remember when this topic came up and it took me a moment to understand the goal, the idea of net negative lines of code, where you look for ways to reduce some of the complexity, but also add the new features that are necessary. Yeah, I think I like it. I'm still thinking through it, but it, it makes sense. Like, I love the idea of cleaning up and, of course, reducing some of the complexity. Have you found that that's typically how your projects go? Are you able to achieve that negative no, or come close to No, it's to almost it? never a thing. There's there was one app where I deleted 100,000 lines of code. So that one I was net negative on. I'm sorry, someone how many had, lines? 100,000. Uh, <laughs> what did you do? Someone had accidentally committed the entirety of the Ace Editor project. So it's a JavaScript library that provides like a code editor in the browser, but there's a lot of different files and themes and plugins and extensions, and all of it was in public. So in the public directory, which in the root of a Rails app, doesn't really matter with the exception that those files will all be served because they're in public. <laughs> and so I was like, well, this if it were anywhere else, I might not care, but this actually sort of matters. And I'm going to get rid of those. And so I got negative 100,000 on that one. So that's the one time that it's actually <laughs> happened. But in the in the like micro version, whenever I put up a PR, if I'm able to introduce a PR that has a net negative lines of so like more red than green, I'm happy about that. And that's a thing that often I'll put up a PR like that and uh, someone else will be like, oh, yeah, look at all that red. And like it's a thing that we're excited about. And even better is if you're able to introduce a new feature while having like net negative. So you've simplified the code in a way that makes it easier to add this thing. That's like a win win. So in the small, it feels like a, a meaningful goal. And now this little addition of, well, let me count my commit message, because that's another thing that I want to optimize for, that I want to encourage. So let's game the system, basically. I'm on board with that. I think I would include the commit message, because that is so helpful, Like especially mm. those one-line changes, where it's like, this seems super important. Yeah. And you don't have the context that, like, where you were making this change, where you had all of that context as to why it's this line that matters. So I'll, I'll allow it. I'm a pretending I'm making up the rules for the game, but if I'm going to play this game, I, I would include that for sure. Cool. <laughs> Although for all games, I worry some people would take it too far to heart and they would yes. reduce lines of code in favor of winning versus legibility. I forget what the, I think it's the Peterson principle, but ah. it's the idea of what gets measured gets managed. And so any metric, anything that you put in is automatically going to be gamed. Like, that's just human nature. We're going to do it. We're going to try and optimize whatever stats. So that's why I say that it's somewhat in jest. Like, this isn't an actual thing to aim for because then you're going to be optimizing exclusively, or maybe not exclusively, but much more so, perhaps to an unhealthy amount for removing code. But that said, if, if I can, you know, creep that number up, I feel good about that. It's a direction. It's sort of a, it's a North Star, if you will, but not a, I'm never going to get to the North Star because it's up in the sky. Yeah, that's fun. I like that. And I like that you've now brought me in because I hadn't heard of that before. I've seen people around ThoughtBot especially rejoice with PRs where there's like, oh, it's like, look at all that red and it's celebrated. So it's an extra fun sort of like ThoughtBot-ism that I hadn't heard of until now. So it's really cool. For people who spend all their time writing code, we really don't seem to like it. No, we, we still love seem to celebrate the removal of it. <laughs> we do. We dislike complexity, but we do like code. So it's a delicate line. Well, I remember... Ian Anderson, he said something to me that I really appreciated, where he said that code's a liability, 
And so he's always looking for ways, not because he does he enjoys writing code, but if there's an opportunity to not write code to solve a problem, he'll always take that route. And I thought that was such a cool thing that I just never heard before. So that's always stuck with me. Yeah, I feel like that phrase makes the rounds here. And it's interesting because I think it exists in contrast to what I would say is probably a more common belief that code is an asset. Like, oh, our precious source code, this is the thing that makes us special. And the counterpoint then would be like, no, code's a liability. Like, you got to maintain that. You got to keep it running. Code does not sit at rest. Code is constantly becoming vulnerable to attacks and things. Gems go out of date. Versions get old. End of life for all sorts of things. Code doesn't exist at rest. And that's why I would say it's a liability at a minimum. That's one of the things. But yeah, it's a fun, different way to think about things. Yeah, for sure. But we still love code. Very much. good. Yeah, we've got personal projects for when we just need to crank out some code for fun. Sometimes you just got to put on the techno and... Just power through some code. Do you listen to techno when you code? Sometimes. Okay. Uh, Well, I think that probably covers the net negative lines of code conversation. Uh, Steph, I think we had one more thing that you wanted to chat about. Yeah, it was something that you had uh, reminded me of. It's a really cool class in Rails that I'd forgotten about, but rediscovered this week because it's something that you and I had chatted about once before, but I didn't actually then get to use it. So it bubbled back up. But it's the active support message verifier. And to give a bit of context, I was working with another developer and we're implementing an email verification registration flow. And we were looking to add an email confirmed at column to the user's table. But then we realized we also need to add a code for which they can provide back to verify their email if it's in the link and then have that also so we can expire it as we need to. And I started thinking about, well, now we're adding like another column to the user table as well. I was okay with adding one, but now we're going to have the email confirmed at and the email verification code, and it's starting to feel a bit iffy. But I wasn't excited to extract this to another table either and to have an email verifications code table. And that's when you had mentioned to me the active support message verifier where it creates the code, but then it also you can set an expiration date for that token that it's going to generate. I think specifically, it's going to generate a signed message to avoid any tampering. So yeah, that was really neat. I still haven't used it extensively, but it feels like one of those Rails tools that every time I need something in this area, it's perfect. And it even has a nice additional context where you can pass in specifically what that code's being used for. So one of the examples they have in the docs is you can pass in a hash that has like the purpose. And in the example, they have like purpose for login. So then when you need to verify that code that's generated or the token that's coming through, you also need to pass in what purpose it was serving to then check or verify the token. Yeah, it's super nifty. That idea of being able to take two things that we would need to model like next to each other, the having the token, and then when does it expire? But realistically, there are a bunch of invalid states of like, well, what if you have a token and then no expiration date? Like, what do you do with that? That's an invalid version of this data. And so the fact that this little thing allows you to fold it together is just a really nice data modeling thing that I really like. It sort of reminds me of like algebraic data types and functional languages like Elm, the way that you can just really clearly express things and constrain down the whole theme of making impossible states impossible, which is the name of a talk by Richard Feldman that I really, really enjoy. But it's that idea has just sort of stuck with me in a way that others, I've been sort of surprised by how much that keeps coming up to the top of mind. And this is this tiny little example. I'm like, oh, I see that same pattern here, which is cool. But it's also, like you said, just wonderful that this sort of stuff is built into Rails. And we'd be like, oh, I need a token that it, uh, is secure and expires. And it's, oh, look, Rails has just a one-line method for it. That's neat. Thanks, Rails. Thanks, Rails. 
Yeah, there was one downside that you called out that I don't think is too big of a deal, but it's just worth mentioning is the fact that because you're setting an expiration date and that's part of the token itself, that when you are verifying the token, you don't actually know why it's invalid, if perhaps the token itself is wrong or if it's because of the expiration. So you do lose a bit of that granularity of knowing why it's invalid. But in our case, I don't think that matters because either way, it'll still result in the same flow for the user. Well, we'll encourage them to reach out for support or to receive another verification email so yeah, it's it's really neat. I'm I'm looking forward that this time I'll actually get to use it since last time this came up. I didn't actually get to implement it. I think we ended up going a, a different route. So yeah, thanks for that. You are welcome. And thank you, Rails. Rails is really the star of this show. And Ruby. Ruby and Rails. And Rails. And Elm. I mean Elm's becoming a hero too. Mm, have you heard about GraphQL? Uh no. I've got a few <laughs> minutes. You wanna <laughs> chat about it? <laughs> No, I think we've got a listener question that would be a much better use of our time. Good pivot. All right. So this question comes to us from Gal. And Gal writes in, right now I'm working in a very large company and our thing is to do a microservice for everything. We have an awesome infrastructure that makes it easy, but there are things that need to be resolved. We have some large, quote, monolith projects that are being worked on by dozens of engineers. On these projects, we constantly see... A, long build times, and B, lots of conflicts, at least in our lock files. These projects are JS projects, so it's a Yarn or NPM lock file, but I think this question will be valid across multiple languages. So first, how do you mitigate the build time so it won't hurt your development speed? How do companies like GitHub, which have a big monolith, address the lock file conflicts? Yeah, Steph, bunch of pieces there. Let's tease it apart. I feel like we may not have a direct answer to the whole thing, but maybe we got some answers to bits. I don't know. What do you think? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. So I'm I'm excited to explore this with you and get your thoughts on it. Uh, so the first thing that stood out to me, did you notice that they said that they have an awesome infrastructure? Yep. That's really cool. Like I don't often hear from a lot of developers where they're like, our infrastructure is awesome. <laughs> so I'm excited about that. I, I think that's really neat. But for the the long build times and then for lots of conflicts, at least in the lock files, as I mentioned, it's a large company. So there's lots of developers that are committing and trying to work in the same repo. For the build times, I have experienced that where I was working on a larger project. We weren't a giant team, but we started looking for ways to improve the speed of our test was one of the first things that we did because some of our tests were written a while back and circling back to them, we could find ways to reduce perhaps our number of database calls. So one concrete example is FactoryBot where you don't necessarily have to create a record, but you can build a record. So that still gives you the object that you need to work with, but you don't actually have to make that trip to the database. That's one small way or one small win for looking ways to speed up test. Perhaps there's more feature tests that could be written that would then mitigate, like if you're testing one page, perhaps it's worth collapsing some of those expectations into one test. So you're going through the page once versus separating them out into a bunch of small tests. So then you're loading that page and each test call just to test another expectation. So that's another approach. Also, I've seen companies throw money at this when it comes to just spending more money for Circle or Travis or whichever tool they're using, whichever CI tool, so that way they can run more tests in parallel. Those are my immediate thoughts. What thoughts do you have? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And in particular, the option of throwing money at it at the end, you you kind of smirked as you said that, which I'm the only one who could see. But I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do in a lot of these situations. Like this is inherent complexity that's going to sneak in. And so I think that's okay, but shouldn't be the first thing that we reach for. So everything that we're talking about, about trying to reduce build times, 
that can be great. And so there's some low-hanging things around caching, like are we caching the installation of gems, or if these are JavaScript, then the installation of the NPM packages. That's a thing that ideally can speed things up and sort of looking at, there's a bunch of steps in a build process, which ones are taking the most time. If it's just tests, then I think a lot of what you were saying of can we reduce how we're running these tests, can we simplify it? One thing that I've noticed a lot is the use of feature specs where Vue or in the case of like a React app component specs would be perfectly fine. The spec It's a feature spec that's running JavaScript that boots up the app with a given state and asserts that some content is on the page. And that's it. There's no interaction. There's no exercising. And I've seen test suites where there's many, many of these because they're actually testing the UI entirely through the feature level. But we don't need to do that. Particularly in Rails, we have the ability to do view specs and... I've noticed I have an affinity for view specs that not everyone seems to share, but they're great. They're like nice little focused in things, and I can test just what I want. Oh, well, I share that affinity. I really like view specs, especially because I try to keep my feature specs along the happy path. So view specs are where I test the, the oddities, mm. like the, what happens when we don't have data, what do we show? To me, that's not a happy path. So I'll keep that out of the feature spec and put that into a view spec. And I think any feature spec should be interacting with the page. It shouldn't just be viewing. Like loading and then asserting about the page to me is not sufficient to warrant a feature spec. I want to go to a page, do a thing, see that the world changed in a certain way. Another thing that you said that I want to dig into, because I actually had an interesting conversation about it this week, was the idea of having multiple tests that each have a single assertion, but actually have the same setup, and you can collapse those together. I am personally a firm believer in same setup, same test. So if it is the identical setup for a test, then put all those assertions together. I almost think of like the assertions as implementation details of how one would know that we're on the correct page. But I've seen cases where like the color and the text of a message are separately tested. And so as a human, I'm looking at the page and I see green, you did a good job. I don't see that as it is green and it has the text, you did a good job. I see, quote, a success message. And then the corollary of the failure message. So that's another way that you can collapse tests together, although that's not shared by everyone, I found. A lot of folks actually firmly lean towards the single assertion per spec. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Because it sounds like you're similar mindset to me, but are you fully in the camp of same setup, same test? I think if you'd asked me a couple years ago, I would have fallen into the camp of single assertion per spec because that feels clean. It feels very focused. And I understand why folks are attracted to that. But over time, I favor the speed of my test more than that sort of single expectation for each test. So I've started to fall into the camp of, as you'd mentioned, as long as it's testing like the same feature and making similar assertions about the state of the world that's changing in that test, then I'm a fan of grouping it together And I have seen that perhaps be taken a little too far where the test is clicking through multiple pages and then testing a bunch of different areas of Mm -hmm. the app. And it comes along on the same argument of, well, I didn't want to break this into another test because I'm trying to speed things up and I don't want to have to separate these. Um, But those I would favor having separate. So I think there's a fine line to walk where as long as it feels reasonable that this is a flow the user would go through, let's make multiple assertions so that way we don't have to separate these into tests and have it take longer but then also make sure that we're still keeping the test focused to like a reasonable user flow that doesn't span across many pages. Then as like a test reader, I'm pretty confused at this point where I've gone halfway down the test and seen three expectations, gone down a bit further. I see four more expectations, gone down a bit further, and I see another expectation. That starts to feel confusing to me. Yeah, I definitely agree with the 
exercise, assert a couple times, exercise again, assert a couple times. That is a pattern that I try and avoid. But just to clarify for anyone listening, I said earlier, same setup, same test. But what I meant was same setup and execution. So given the world is in this state and I click the button, as long as all of that's the same and then I'm just asserting on a few things, I will collect those together. Uh, but I agree what you're saying about the multiple of them together. So there's one other trick that I've used once for another project, and I think I've, I've used it on others, but it didn't really stand out to me till now that I'm thinking about it in the context of this question, is setting up tests to actually run linting or RuboCop or some of those processes first. So that way, if it does fail, we're not waiting for like all the tests to run to then have some failure that's based on linting. Like I'd rather know the quick stuff up front if that's what's going to be checked. And then hopefully that would also speed up testing because I'll get to know that sooner versus I imagine like the actual feature specs are going to take a lot longer to run. Yep. Optimize early feedback in all things, please. I realize uh, with this question, I'm making the presumption that we're talking about long build times for tests. I'm, I'm starting to mm. wonder if I'm misreading this question. Oh, it's quite possible that this is like Babel and other JavaScript compilation. Yeah, I'm not sure how to mitigate that. So there's an aspect of this that has to do, I think, specific to the JavaScript ecosystem because there's such a proliferation of packages in that world. Like a pretty simple app is going to have potentially thousands of dependencies, whereas I think a typical Rails app will have 50 to 100 gems. And those are just fundamentally different sizes and that's a very complicated thing that like recently we've seen a bunch of security issues related to that where there's just such a surface area to exploit when there's thousands of packages that that's a really hard thing to manage. And the same thing is showing up here, like the lock files thrashing in those is an outcome of a little change just has a bunch of downstream things and then they kind of get in a fight. I don't have a great solution to that, unfortunately. The one consideration I would have, and I'm going to have to make an assumption here, is that these are front-end JavaScript applications that there's like a bigger app that a bunch of people are working in because it's covering multiple different aspects of the site or of the the domain of the product. This is actually something I've been coming around to lately. Uh, although I don't really like microservices in the back end, I do increasingly like the idea of splitting up the front end into smaller deployable apps, if you will. So a little like, this is a React app for the admin dashboard. This is a React app for the client dashboard. This is the customer. Whereas traditionally, like in a Rails app, we would have that all in one. And the admin stuff would just be at slash admin. But it's all served by the same Rails app. GraphQL, in fact, is my preferred technology to stitch together all of that behind the scenes, but to allow sort of a fan out of clients in front of it. And that's especially easy in the world of GraphQL because you end up with more of just a projection of state and all sorts of nice things like that, as opposed to a lot of complexity out in those leaf nodes. That could mitigate some of these because now you'll have less people working in each of the applications, but there's certainly trade-offs in that because now you've got more things to keep in sync. It's an interesting question because I think, like you said, there's there's no real great solution for it, but it's going to be a mix of trying different approaches of maybe separating out certain tooling, uh, looking for ways to speed up tests, and then... Honestly, yeah, uh, investing some more financial resources into speeding up the build times because you don't want to slow down your development time because that's also costly. So you're just changing the, the cost into an area that will then help the team be more productive. So, yeah, thanks again, Gal, for sending us that question. That was an interesting question to talk through. And for anyone out there, we love answering these questions, so please feel free to send us more. You can send us questions on Twitter at underscore Bike Shed, or you can email us questions at host at bikeshed.fm. So on that note, I think we can wrap up. Sounds good. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. 
If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.